we have been working our way through Galatians. And uh, last Sunday in our message, we looked at Paul's Old Testament analogy. And we saw that in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, where the Apostle Paul, he employs the Old Testament story and, and historical event uh, regarding Hagar and Ishmael and, and Sarah and Isaac, and he employs that story and, and what happened in that particular scenario, he employs it as an analogy to teach spiritual truth. And uh, if you recall, Hagar's son Ishmael, he represented the way of the flesh and slavery, uh, Basically, being under the law is what they represented in a spiritual sense. And Sarah's son, Isaac, represented the way of the Abrahamic promise and freedom. And that would be the way of grace, being under grace. And uh, Paul told the Galatian brothers, they are children, not of Hagar the slave, but of Sarah the free woman, as a result of the Abrahamic promise and their faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we covered last Sunday. In the next section, Paul pretty much takes everything that he has said in chapters 3 and 4, his entire defense of justification by faith alone, from what experience and from Scripture, he takes everything that he's pretty much said in those two chapters and, and kind of boils it all down into a, into a main point and, uh, and I think he, he did this because the analogies and things that he employed would have been better understood by Jewish listeners. And there were some Jewish Christians in these churches, but there were also Gentiles. And Gentiles like us have a hard time understanding Jewish stories in the Old Testament. And I think he kind of takes everything and boils it down here for the benefit of the Gentiles who would have been reading this letter or hearing it read. And uh, if, if Gentiles had any trouble connecting the dots and, and, and seeing the spiritual parallels that, you know, in Paul's examples and the analogies that he used thus far, then his straightforward writing in the next section was intended to make things crystal clear for, for anyone who reads this, especially for the Gentile. So if you'd be kind enough to please take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And I have entitled this message very simply. I'm not real fancy on titles. I try to draw the titles from the, from the Scripture itself, but I've just entitled it very simply, Paul's Main Point. If we take chapters 3 and 4 and boil them down, this is what he means. And we're going to look at three things this morning. I've divided the text into three sections. We'll look at the exhortation in verse 1. We'll look at the example in verses 2 and 3. And then we'll look at the effect in verses 4 through 6. Let's pick up where we left off. Last Sunday, we'll begin with that first pointer section, the exhortation. We see this right here in verse 1. This is the very next thing that Paul says after giving the analogy and telling the Galatian brothers that they are you know, from the seed of Abraham. They are family members of Sarah's side through faith. And he says this, this is a, a remarkable statement, maybe one of those statements that you circle and highlight in Scripture because it's one of those impactful, awesome verses. And he says this very plainly and straightforward, 
For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This, this is where Paul has been going this whole time, really, in the entire letter. Just to get to this point of making this bold, awesome statement. And what he's doing is he's declaring emphatically something here, and that is that God's stated purpose for redemption is totally for freedom. The, the, the reason why God redeems and saves is to literally set people free. That is a, a main thrust of his salvation. And Christ came to, to set us free from the power and bondage of the law, and that's ultimately what Galatians addresses. If there's many things that we're freed from, we'll touch on those, but the one main point in this particular letter to these Galatian believers is that that's why God has redeemed us, to set us free from slavery and bondage to the law. How does He do that? He does it through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, the one He sent for us. You think about it, 700 or so years before the the birth of Christ, Isaiah, the prophet, the great prophet Isaiah, he's a major prophet, he prophesied that Christ would come to secure our freedom. So when Paul talks about Christ setting us free, and that's really kind of one of the goals of salvation, that's not a new concept, that's not a new idea here to these Galatians. This is, this is rooted in, in, in prophecy of old. This is spoken about you know, many centuries before Christ even actually comes to do it. And what does it say in Isaiah 61.1, speaking of Messiah to come, that's Jesus. He will, what? He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will tell the captives they are free. And he will tell the prisoners they are released. This is a prophecy that was uttered by the prophet Isaiah long before Christ ever came. He is saying to the Israelites... There is a Messiah that is coming, and He is coming for the purpose of freedom. He is going to liberate captives. And who are the captives? The captives, captives are God's elect. They're all of God's people, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, who, whoever it is that God has elected to save, those are the captives. And we would just simply say it's all believers. Everyone who, who trusts in Christ was a captive and has been liberated from this bondage and slavery to the law. What other things come to mind when we, when we speak of being captives who, are, who have been set free? There's a lot of things, right? One of them that we talk about probably more than bondage to the law would be to sin. We were slaves to sin. And Jesus came to liberate us from that slavery to sin. Romans 6.18, it's real simple. We were under the, the power and sway of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Ephesians 2.2, Jesus has liberated us out from under bondage to Him. Uh, we have been liberated from, out from under the world and its worthless elementary principles, right? We all belong to the world at one time, but Jesus, through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, through our faith in Him, we have been liberated and brought out from under the world in its worthless elementary principles and teachings. Galatians 4.9, uh, we have been liberated by Christ out from under the power and fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, we see this in Romans 7, 24 and 25. And then ultimately what the goal of Galatians is to illustrate how we have been liberated 
and brought out from underneath the bondage and slavery to the law with its uncompromising demands. Colossians 2.14. Christ came to set us free. Isaiah talked about it, but Christ literally came nearly 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. He came to set us free from all of these terrible things. And, and it isn't that He just came to do it. He actually came and did it. He did it. He accomplished it. His, his, uh, his atoning work satisfied the Father and accomplished all that is necessary for our liberation through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it is a, it is a perfected, finished work. It's not something that we chisel away with through our obedience. And that's the issue of the Judaizers. They were trying to tell the Galatians that you still got to earn part of this deal. And then how is this freedom that Isaiah talks about and that Paul is talking about here, how is this freedom appropriated to sinners like us? We've been learning through Galatians that it is absolutely not through works of the law, right? We don't attain this freedom through our own efforts. We don't, over time, set ourselves free by obeying the law. Every bit of law we obey, it just further in, it envelops and encompasses us or imprisons us. And I'm not talking about just obeying the law as a humble believer. That's a good thing. I'm talking about when you are, are trying to obey the law for justification in a self-justifying way. But this is appropriated, this freedom, all the work and blessing and everything that Christ accomplished for sinners, it is appropriated to us not through works of the law, but through faith. Through trusting in Jesus Christ, we obtain all that He did and accomplished. Every bit of it. There's not one drop left out. We get all the grace. We get all the mercy. We get all the liberation, a total and absolute liberation, a total freedom. There's no aspect of us that isn't free. We don't tend to believe that because we struggle with sin, but we've still been liberated and freed from the power of sin. Maybe when we start to understand that more, we'll start walking in greater freedom. But it's appropriated, and it's important for us to know this because this is the point of Galatians and really all of Scripture. And we think all the way back to how Abraham was, was counted righteous by God. Was it through taking Isaac up on the hill and almost sacrificing? No, it was through his faith. It was through faith that he obeyed God and did what he was told to do, and he did that. But he was essentially counted righteous and justified through faith. And so this is not even a new concept here. It's always been through Faith, And what we need to understand this morning is faith in Jesus Christ, it brings true freedom. Why is that? Because we are trusting in the one who established this freedom through his perfect work, right? When you trust in Christ, the, the, the one who, who um, obtained this freedom for us, when you trust in the one who obtained it for us, you get what he obtained for us. You get the freedom. And this is essentially what he's saying here to these Galatian brothers, Jesus, listen, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with the law's legal demands, literally. This he set aside and nailed to the cross. This is precisely what Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 14. He really is preaching the same message to the Colossians. You're justified by faith alone. You have freedom in Christ. He's taking you out from bondage and slavery to the law. You're no longer under that system. And I'm not preaching antinomianism. I'm just saying we cannot go to the law for justification because we're justified by faith alone. And that's essentially what he's saying here once again. 
if we are trusting in the Son, then the Son has set us free indeed. John 8, 36, right? We are no longer under the power of sin, no longer under Satan, no longer under the world, no longer under death, no longer under the law. We captives have been completely liberated, exonerated by the righteousness of Christ and liberated by the Father. Now, if we attempt to go back to sin and the world and the law and all of these things, and I would say especially the law, we are basically resubmitting ourselves to a yoke of slavery. This is what Paul warns about here. I have been liberated and brought out from under the world. I'm no longer under its sway or teachings. I'm not under its penalties. I'm not subjected to it. But if I go back to the world as a Christian, I'm basically resubmitting myself to the world's slavery. This is what he's teaching here. You go back to a yoke of slavery. That's why he says stand firm. I like that word yoke. A yoke is a wooden bar that farmers, ancient farmers and farmers today use, and they use it to join two animals together for either plowing or pulling, um, and it goes around the animal's necks. And, and what Paul is, is trying to convey here is that if the Galatians or us go back to the law, it would be like strapping ourselves to a 1,200-pound ox that pretty much goes wherever it wants to go and totally takes away our mobility and freedom. No, if, we were to, if I were to tie myself to a bull, I don't get to go where I want to go unless I put a bit in its mouth and I've trained it. If I strap myself to a bull, I'm going on a long, hard ride. I'm going to get bucked all over the pasture. I'm going wherever that animal wants to take me, and I, there's not much I can do about it because he outweighs me by about 100 pounds. Oh, I haven't gotten that big. <laughs> I'm getting close. I need to get back to exercising. My belly's getting big. I don't even know why I said that. Now you're going to be staring at my belly. Think about the point that he's making here. You are, if you go back to the things that you have been set free from, you are re-yoking yourself to those things. You are voluntarily putting yourself back into bondage and a type of slavery. And his illustration here is vivid. It's like strapping yourself to a big old ox or pair of oxen. And you're not going to get to go where you want to go. You do that with the law of God, it's going to take you to where you do not want to go over time, right? It's going to take you to where you do not want to go. And it is this way with the law. If you strap yourself to it, it will enslave you because you are required to obey every jot and tittle without exception. He said this in verse 3. The law will take you where you do not want to go. And where is it that you do not want to go? Ultimately, if you follow the law, it will take you straight to hell. That's where it'll take you. Why? Because all it can do is point out sin. It cannot justify sinners. Only faith in Christ can justify sinners. The law can never justify. Galatians 2.16, this is a point that he makes. So, so if we strap ourselves to the law, we're strapping ourselves to an animal we cannot control that will take us to where we do not want to go, and that is straight to hell, literally. Remember, the purpose of the law is to reveal sin and to point us to the only antidote, Christ Jesus. But if a person is already in Christ by grace through faith, and if they foolishly add works of the law to their justification or for their justification, the law will literally pull them away from Christ, and they will eventually, as it says in verse 4, they will eventually fall away from grace. This is how it works. 
Now, Paul exhorts the Galatians to recognize their freedom in Christ and to stand firm against the Judaizers who were trying to re-yoke them to the law and make them slaves. In the next two lines, the apostle identifies the particular law the Galatians were actually dealing with or wrestling with, and he uses it as an example to refute the Judaizers and anyone who thinks that works of the law are necessary for justification. Let's move to our second point. This is the example. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Paul says this in the very next line. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Wow, what a statement. In Paul's day, uh, Jews were often referred to as the circumcised. This was a, a nickname they had and were proud of. I can't imagine being proud of a nickname like that. That's a little too personal for me. Acts 10.45, they're referred to as the circumcised. Galatians 2.7, they were referred to as the circumcised. What a bizarre thing. And circumcision became the most distinctive outward mark and the one in which Jews had the greatest pride and confidence. Rather than seeing circumcision as a symbol of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his progeny, Genesis 17, 9-10, most Jews saw it as a way of securing God's favor and blessings, and in some cases, even the salvation of God. Like in Paul's day, a Jew could very well ask, what is necessary for me to inherit the kingdom? Kind of like the rich young ruler asked. Well, if an unregenerate Jew answered the question, he'd say, get circumcised and you're headed there. Well, that's all it takes. This is how much stock they put into circumcision. And that's why the Judaizers are pressing this particular act on these uncircumcised Gentiles. Gentiles didn't get circumcised in those days, only Jews. And so they're making it necessary for justification and salvation. But you need to understand Paul's objection here is not to circumcision in itself, right? Like all Jewish boys, he himself had been circumcised on the eighth day. Philippians 3.5, he talks about that. And during his ministry, he actually took Timothy, his young protege, he took Timothy and had him circumcised. Timothy was like half Jewish and half Greek, and when Paul met him, he was uncircumcised. And he took Timothy to have him circumcised by a, a rabbi, not because Paul thought that was necessary for justification, but Paul knew that when he ministered to Jews, if he had an uncircumcised Gentile with him, they wouldn't even listen to the gospel. And the beauty of that whole account in Acts 16 is that Timothy says, I'll go and do it. Timothy's a young man, but he says, I'll go and do it because I don't want to hinder the gospel. So Paul, we see him interacting with circumcision there. His objection is not with circumcision in and of itself. His objection is centered on the false idea that circumcision somehow produces spiritual merit. The Judaizers were, Judaizers were saying, in effect, that, that faith in Jesus Christ, although important, it was not sufficient for justification. They taught that the teachings of Moses had to be perfected by our own efforts. And the centerpiece of the teachings of Moses, according to these guys in this day, was circumcision. In other words, if a person wanted to be justified and declared right by God, they had to have faith in Jesus Christ, and they had to do everything that Moses commanded, starting or beginning with circumcision. So in the 
Judaizer's system, justification came through a combination of faith and works, just like in Roman Catholicism. According to the Judaizers, circumcision was not about cleanliness or it wasn't about covenant or anything like that. It was an outward act that helped to secure the believer's justification. Hence the reason why they're pressing it upon these Galatians. Hence the reason why Paul is saying, if you do that particular aspect of the law, be prepared to do the rest of it. Now, in, in some modern contemporary versions of, of this false gospel and false ideology of the Judaizers, we see it in, in many different examples today. And I'm, I'm not meaning to, to sling hash or fire on other groups, but uh, there, there are groups that call themselves Christian who have added works of the law to justification. Uh, one example would be the Church of Christ. They have replaced uh, circumcision, has been replaced with baptism. And they say that a, a believer is not going to be fully justified until that believer has been baptized, immersed in water. And so they just take one out and add a different one. They add the other sacrament. Uh, they add a sacrament. Justification uh, comes to the believer when the believer is immersed in water. So it's not just a faith thing. It's a, a work that we do as well. And I already mentioned it, but in Roman Catholicism, uh, circumcision and faith have been replaced with baptism. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. This is why they have paedo-baptism. How could a newborn infant possibly have faith in Christ? And yet when they sprinkle water over that infant, they're saying that infant is justified before God. Good to go. Saved. There's no faith there. There's nothing. And so they just took out circumcision and they put in baptism. It's a sprinkled baptism. They don't even do immersion, which the Church of Christ would say, well, that's not sufficient. And I would say it's not a right baptism because you have to be immersed. You should be. That's what baptism means. In Presbyterianism, circumcision has been replaced with baptism, but not for justification. We need to draw a distinction there. The Presbyterians have basically borrowed pedo or infant baptism from Roman Catholicism, but they don't do it in a, in a way to justify. They do it as a symbol of belonging to the covenant family of God, but it's still very controversial. Have you ever watched any of the debates and arguments and fun conversations between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul? When they talk about these things, boy, they razz each other really good. It's fun to watch. It's okay. You can actually hammer each other in the name of Jesus. I love it. But these are groups that, that have basically, they're ultimately, I think with the exception of Presbyterianism to, to a degree, they are doing what the Judaizers were doing, but just in a different way. And, of course, we know the cults do this with Mormonism and Jehovah Witnessism. Of course, they don't even have the right Jesus. But... There's still works of the law. They're like with Mormons, don't drink caffeine. I'm like, I can't even get to church. I'm in big trouble without caffeine. Uh, so it, anyone who adds any sort of works of the law or, or anything to justification, adding it to faith, that's where you go wrong here. And that's what Paul is, again, talking about. Paul is not objecting to circumcision in and of itself. It can be a, a good thing uh, for, uh, you know, keeping a, you know, for somebody for cleanliness. There's reasons why we, we've done that. Uh, but he has a, he's objecting to the view that it somehow justifies and has spiritual merit. And he's ultimately saying if you accept circumcision, Christ is going to be of no advantage to you at all. Like you basically trade 
that work of the law, circumcision, for Christ. Christ is of no advantage to you. In other words, if you think that getting circumcised brings justification, you are denying Christ who secured your justification through his resurrection. This is what Paul is saying here. What did he tell the, the churches that were scattered throughout Rome, the Roman churches or the churches that were in the Rome area? What did he say to them? He says very simply, Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There's no justification for anyone apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through His resurrection that He secures it, and it's through our faith that it's secured for us. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Big, big point here. If we add circumcision or any other work of the law or baptism or communion or anything to faith for justification, Christ will be of no advantage to us. Why is that? Because we are denying His perfect finished work on our behalf. When we try to add something, we're ultimately telling Him on the cross, you lied to us. You said it was finished, but I've got to add my effort to it now. And that's what happens. We are, we are saying, you lied to us on the cross. It wasn't finished as you said. And here's my contribution. I got circumcised. Here's my contribution. I got baptized. Here's my contribution. I, I participate in communion. Here's my, here's my contribution. I, I obey the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. I think I obey the Ten Commandments. Here's my contribution. You add anything, you're contributing to the work of Christ. Therefore, you are nullifying the work of Christ. This is the way that it works. That's why this letter is so important. It's so important. And you know what? Here, here's, here's something. Even if a person, and I would say there's been some people throughout history that have gotten pretty good at obeying the law. I would say the Pharisees were probably at the top of the food chain there. But they failed miserably. Jesus exposed that. But even if a person were to become somewhat successful at following the law, like they're trying to obey everything that God commanded for their justification, the end result would still be tragic. Why is that? Because the law cannot justify sinners, no matter what. No matter what. Romans 3.20, and that's ultimately the point of this entire epistle, Galatians. You, you can go at it as hard as you want, but even if you got good at it, the only thing you're going to become is prideful or discouraged over time when you fail. You're not going to bring yourself justification. It only comes through faith. That's the whole point of the book. In the next three lines, Paul describes what happens. Listen to this. He describes what happens when a person adds works of the law to faith for justification. This is our third and final point. This is what I call the effect. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Listen to what, I mean, this is the strongest. I think this is the strongest language in this letter. There's some strong language in this letter. I'm not talking about our version of strong language today. I'm just talking about some strong, some hard words here, right? You know, kind of like when he said, I think I've labored over you in vain. That was strong language. Kind of like when he said, uh, you know, I taught you the truth and now I've become your enemy. That's strong language. How about in chapter 1? You want to hear some strong language? You, these Judaizers are preaching a false gospel to you, and anyone who adds works of the law to justification is accursed, separated from God under a curse. That, my friends, is strong language. And Christians today are terrified of using biblical language or strong language 
in defense of Scripture or in their gospel presentations. We need to get back to talking about sin, get back to talking about repentance, get back to talking about this, using this strong language. This is the Word of God. God wants us to use His Word. We have strong language here. And look at this right out of the gate. He says this, you're kind of in trouble. That's probably the way the message would put it. That's not what Paul says here in verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ. Severed. Cut off. And he says, who is he speaking to? You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And then in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. To me personally, the the warning in verse 4 is is just absolutely terrifying. To be severed from Christ. We need to understand something. If you are severed from Christ, you are not saved. You are on the broad road to destruction. And you're going to go there with all your obedience to the law for justification. It's a terrifying warning. When a person adds works of the law, like circumcision or anything, to faith for justification, it really, here what Paul says, is it produces a, a devastating twofold effect. Twofold effect. The first thing he says is what? We've already covered it. It severs the individual from Christ. The Greek word for severed is uh, it's katargeo. Or kata, yeah, kata, kata, katargeo. It's hard to pronounce and it's, it's really even hard to spell. Katargeo. And it, it means to abolish. To abolish. It means to, and, and this is a, a phrase that we would be more familiar with, to wipe out to wipe something out. And it can also be translated as to set aside, to set aside. The broader meaning of what Paul is saying is this, is when a person adds works of the law to faith for justification, they are abolishing the finished work of Jesus Christ and they are becoming severed from Christ. It's that simple. The addition of a work or works for justification literally wipes out the effect of the cross. It wipes out the burial. It wipes out the resurrection of Jesus Christ, thus severing the individual from Christ, thus severing that person from the atoning work of Christ. This is is heavy duty. There's no wiggle room here. Well, you're just being very black and white, Phil, with the scriptures black and white here. There's no gray. So the first thing that happens when you add works for justification, you add to that to faith for justification, the first effect is that the person is cut off, is severed, is, is they abolish the work of Christ and they sever themselves from Christ. And then secondly, what Paul says here, when an individual add works to faith for justification, they have now, he says, fallen away from grace. It's an interesting phrase. Fallen away from grace. We need to understand a right theology here and what Scripture teaches. We need to understand, firstly, that, that grace is in Christ. Okay? 2 Timothy 2.1. Uh, I'll take it further. There is no grace outside of Christ. 
and maybe I can correct myself and say there is a, a type of grace that does exist out there, and we call it common grace, but even it does not exist apart from Christ. I would say even common grace, the grace that, that pretty much everyone enjoys, even it has its origin, even it is derived from Christ. What is common grace? The undeserved grace that all sinners enjoy and benefit from, and it is depicted as what? The rain falling on the just and fallen on the unjust, Matthew 5.45. In fact, common grace is a way in which the nations of the earth are blessed, and it comes through Abraham's promised seed, Jesus Christ. Genesis 22.18, right? Through your seed I will bless the nations. Speaking of Christ, speaking of common grace, speaking of the salvation that Christ will bring to the nations. Now, I just want you to follow, as I've said this, I want you to follow the logic of Paul's statement. If a person is severed from Christ, they have therefore fallen away from grace because Christ is the source and wellspring of grace. Let me put it this way even more simply. No Christ, no grace. None. None. Now, a question arises at this point, I hope, in your minds, and that would be this. Is it possible for a genuine believer to become severed from Christ and to fall away from grace? Is that a possibility here? I mean, who was Paul addressing here in his letter? He was addressing brothers, quote-unquote, right? And made fun of Bruce last week because Bruce always says, hey, brother. He's addressing brothers. And now you need to understand, sometimes Jews addressed one another as brothers. And I think sometimes that term brother is interchangeable with just, you know, even like we would use it today when we cross paths with somebody at the grocery store. Hey, brother, how you doing? He may not even be a believer. But he addresses, he is addressed in this letter over and over and over brothers. Galatians 1.11 Chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 12, and then in verse 28 and verse 31, chapter 5, verse 11, and 13, chapter 6, verse 1, and verse 18, over and over and over. Brothers, 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 brothers. Sounds like Bruce on a Sunday morning. Was he referring to brother believers, or did he use the term like people do today? Well, I believe he was addressing brother believers he had witnessed the Spirit's regenerating power and when he and Barnabas had passed through Galatia. I mean, these guys, Barnabas and Paul, planted churches in, these, in, in the region of, of Galatia, in these various cities in Galatia. And you know what you have to have to plant churches? Genuine believers. There were real conversions that took place when Paul went through Galatia preaching the gospel. People were converted. They were saved. They were justified by faith alone. Who is he writing to here? He's writing to the saved people. Now, if Paul is warning literal brothers in Christ about the dangers of being severed from Christ, the dangers of falling away from grace, then it, it certainly would seem possible that genuine believers can indeed become severed and fall away. Like genuine believers can give themselves over to the law or to something else like circumcision or baptism, and, and they could therefore give themselves over to those things for justification, therefore they could sever themselves. Is this true? Can a genuine believer sever their self? No. No, they can't. I'd say they can get stinking close, but they can't do it. I think Paul is, is, is obviously warning the true believers in these churches, but he is 
ultimately issuing a terrifying warning at the Judaizers who had given themselves over from the gospel of grace to a gospel of works and were now trying to propagate and perpetuate that all over the place. I think that's who he has in his crosshairs here ultimately, in the ultimate sense. Genuine believers cannot sever themselves from Christ or completely fall away from grace. Notice how I said completely. Genuine believers have been given eternal life. What, what verse does everyone hold up at the sporting events? Anyone who believes in Jesus shall have eternal life, John 3.16. Eternal means forever with no breaks, no pauses, no lapses. It means that the new life God gives in Christ can never and will never end. And this is because God upholds this new life, this salvation, this eternal life. He upholds it with His omnipotent all power. If salvation were, were in our hands, it would be intermittent life, not eternal life. Why? Because we are mutable and we change all the time and we do not have the kind of power that is necessary to keep this eternal life in place. As R.C. Sproul said, says, he used to say all the time, if we could lose our salvation, we would. So, so the genuine believer is being warned here, but the genuine believer cannot you know, fall completely away from grace or become completely severed from Christ. But what genuine believers can do is they can adopt false teachings like health and wealth. They can get on bandwagons. They can somehow give themselves over to wokeness and CRT and all the other shenanigans of this world. Genuine believers can do this. They can adopt false teachings, false doctrines even, to a degree. They can take things on that are not orthodox or scriptural, and they can therefore in a way set aside Christ. Now, this can sever them from orthodoxy and sever them from reality, but it will not completely sever them from Christ. Now, bear in mind, I'm referring to open-handed negotiable doctrines. I'm not referring to the deal breakers such as the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or justification by faith alone. Those are breached, you're severed, and you prove that you were never actually a believer. But there are negotiables. We can go rounds on election, even though I feel like election, the doctrine of election is a gospel doctrine and it's far less negotiable than people take it to be today. But we can, we can discuss that and you can have a, a little different view than me on it and still totally be in the fold. In fact, people tell me I'm not in the fold because I'm a Calvinist. Whatever. There, there are negotiable things and there are unnegotiable things. And the unnegotiable things, if you breach those, you prove that you are outside the fold. They prove that they were not in the fold or part of the body to begin with. And I think that's probably what was happening with the Judaizers. I'm not sure that there was ever a moment where they didn't believe in works for justification. I don't think that they could ever shed their Judaism after they were heard the gospel. They kept that going and then just added Christ to it. Therefore, they were not in the fold. And another thing we need to understand about genuine believers is maybe we can't sever ourselves entirely entirely fall away from grace, so to speak, but we can suffer devastating falls, devastating falls. 
life-changing, life-damaging, marriage-destroying, church-scattering, disunity, dissension falls. There are things that we can get ourselves involved with that cause, wreak havoc and cause so much damage and yet not fall entirely away from grace or be severed from Christ. Who comes to mind? One of the great Christians of all time, King David. What did David do? Remember when that whole dumb thing about Jesus, what would Jesus do? No, it's what Jesus did. But what did David do? David did something that, that raises our eyebrows and the, and, and the little hairs on my arms. Uh, to think that a, 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 man of, a man after God's own heart would commit adultery with another man's wife and then try to cover up the pregnancy by killing her husband, that, that sounds like what the Taliban is doing. That's hardcore. And yet this man of God did this. It's not that sin that makes him a man after God's own heart. It's Psalm 51. It's re his repentance when he comes to his senses at the wisdom and rebuke of, of a prophet named Nathan. But what David did is unconscionable. It's, it's difficult for us to even measure. And yet he was a real, genuine believer. Don't tell me that Christians can't suffer big falls. They can. The scripture is replete with these examples. Peter suffered a grand and glorious fall. He denied his Lord three times. He committed insurrection or uh, uh, something toward Jesus while he was in that, in, in, near that fire in that courtyard. I don't know if it was insurrection that he committed, but it was treason is what he committed. Treason against his Lord by denying his Lord. Not once, not twice, three times a lady. He did. That was a grand fall. That was an apostle. That was an apostle. That was the, the apostle that the Roman Catholics had turned into the first pope. We can suffer grand, devastating falls, but we cannot fall entirely away. Um, I like what Dave sent me this morning. I had time to edit the sermon and add it, but it was uh, by the Puritan Thomas Case. He wrote this. He said, The taught of God, you know whom God teaches His people, the taught of God may be moved, but not removed. They may fall, but not fall away. Fearfully, but not finally. Terribly, but not totally. Well, that's right on the money. That's precisely what can happen to us. I think of during the Last Supper uh, with Jesus talking to Peter uh, during that interaction. He tells Peter that, that, that Satan was going to sift him like wheat. Do you know what it means to be sifted like wheat? It means to be destroyed. Somehow, Satan and Jesus are interacting in regards to Peter. And Satan says, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to sift him like wheat, utterly destroy him. And, and now Jesus is telling Peter about this interaction he has with the devil. And Peter's must have been sitting there going, are you kidding me? You guys were, he's going to try to destroy me. You told him no, right? <laughs> no, I didn't tell him no. No, I didn't tell him no. Jesus actually permitted Satan to have his way with Peter to a degree, but 
what Jesus tells Peter is just phenomenal. It's incredible. And this, this is the basis for why we make it to the finish line. It's not in our own effort. It's because of this stuff right here. He tells Peter Satan is going to sift you. He's going to destroy you. But then he assures Peter, because Peter's probably going, oh, no. But then he assures Peter that his faith will survive the onslaught. And it's not because Peter was bold, because he was. It's not because Peter was sturdy. He was pretty sturdy. It's not because Peter was tough. He was kind of a tough guy. It's because Jesus would pray for him. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. What am I saying? Peter made it through this ordeal, not because of Peter, but because Jesus prayed for him. That's how he made it through. If Jesus had not prayed for Peter, Peter would have been devoured and lost his faith. The devil would have, the devil would have slurped up his faith like a, a thirsty lizard does on a dry desert when he finds a little bit of water. He'd have lapped it up. You need to understand we can fall like Peter. We can fall like David. We can fall hard. But Jesus will not let us fall entirely away. Now this truth, and here's the, here's the danger, and this is why Roman Catholicism presses so hard against this. They're in fear that if we understand this and know this and we'll just live in licentiousness and do whatever we want. This truth of eternal security should not produce within us any kind of fatalism, any kind of apathy or laziness, okay? Just because you'll make it to the finish line because of God's power doesn't mean you need to sit back on cruise control and let a bunch of garbage into your life and not guard yourself and not protect yourself and not yourself put on that armor of God. God doesn't say, hey, there's some armor in the, in the cabinet over there. Go stand near it and I'll put it on you. Paul exhorts the Ephesians to take that armor in chapter 6 and put it on. They have to put the armor on. God has provided it. You put on the weaponry. You put on the defense mechanism. We need to not think fatalistically and I'll just make it to the end and, and so I can just kick back. It doesn't really matter. No, 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 no. These warnings here are also for us. We may not be able to fall entirely away, but we can fall. We can give ourselves over to false teachings. We can begin to think that God wants my best life now. We can begin to think that, well, I just need to mingle in a little bit of works with that faith for justification. We can start to give ourselves over to that kind of thinking. We need to be on guard because the warning is clear. There is a severing that can take place here. There is a, a falling away from grace that can take place here. Maybe I can't fall entirely away from grace, but maybe I can step away from it for a while in a really bad sinful season. How is that going to be helpful to anyone? Can you imagine if I did something like that? I would be removed from this pastorate and elder board. That would be devastating for this church. Some churches don't recover from this stuff. Mars Hill, there's a long list and this church isn't built on me. It's not based on me. But what I do matters. And I am not motivated to flirt with danger because I know that I can't lose my salvation. Knowing that I can't lose my salvation motivates me to stand firm, not to give in to ridiculousness. It motivates me. In fact, 
Have you ever thought about this? Do you know what the doctrine of compatibilism is? How God works through, through everything that man does to accomplish his purposes, even when men are completely unaware of that? Did you, do you, are you aware of this? This is a phenomenal doctrine, and it's beautiful, and it's very fascinating. But one of the ways that, that God sustains us and carries us through, absolutely through his omnipotent, all-powerful hand, but he actually works his plan out through our own prayers, through our own defensiveness, through our own putting on the armor, through our own being watchful as he told the apostles that night when Jesus was arrested. God works through our self-defense to bring about his full, our glorification, our crossing the finish line in the end. Everything that God does in between, it, I, it, there's a beginning point and there's an end point, but he's also ordained everything in the middle. When I read the scripture, God uses that to fortify me and to keep me safe from falling away. When I pray to him, God works through that. When I put on the armor of God, God works through that to preserve me. I have a role in my own protection, and so do you, and that's the way God has created it. But ultimately, even if I fail, even if I fall, even if I, if, if I get myself involved in something or I don't live a disciplined life, you don't live a disciplined life, we don't sever ourselves entirely. But I just say, why would we want to go out and be like the prodigal? And foul up our lives even more. My life, I have enough trouble in my own life. Why would I want to generate more by not taking these warnings serious? Amen? Think about that. I can't fall away, but I don't want to do anything that's going to make it seem like I can. Put on that whole armor. It's our job to put it on. It's our job to stand firm. Do you notice the exhortation in a previous verse or two there? He tells them to stand firm. God's not going to stand firm for you. He's already as firm as you can be. He's the rock-solid foundation. We're exhorted to stand firm against a, an onslaught of false teaching in the church today. From health and wealth to adding works to justification to... I, to wokeism and it just there's I can't even keep up with all the heresy. Can you? It's everywhere. It's pervasive, and it's our job to stand up against it. In verse five, Paul describes the proper mode for genuine believers. We're getting toward the end here, right? He describes our proper mode. He appears to be teaching that righteousness comes to us incrementally or in stages. When we first believed the gospel, we received the righteousness that is necessary for justification and entry into the kingdom of heaven, right? Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no entry. What is the righteousness that exceeds that of the most religious people in the world? It's the righteousness that Christ alone provides. We have that. We are clothed in that. That righteousness has been imputed to us. When God looks upon me and Steve and, and Dave and, and Ivan, he sees the righteousness of Christ and he justifies, declares us right. We have that, but there is also a righteousness that comes to us in the future. It is the righteousness of perfection, the righteousness of glorification. When our bodies are made entirely right, and that only happens when we're given a new body at the return of Christ and the resurrection. Paul is saying here that our hope, the hope that we have, it's based upon the righteousness we already possess and upon the righteousness we shall receive at the return of Jesus Christ and resurrection. 
This hope is the result of the Spirit in us, and it results from the faith that the Spirit brings. So the proper mode for genuine believers is hope in the righteousness we have and eager anticipation of the righteousness that is to come in the future, which really means our total perfection and glorification at the return of Christ. This is what he's saying. Why is he saying this here? Because the Judaizers were hoping to earn enough merit to secure righteousness and justification. That is the wrong mode. The wrong mode is trying to earn your justification. The right mode is taking joy and hope in the righteousness you have and in the righteousness that's to come. The wrong mode is thinking that somehow you need to merit enough righteousness to be acceptable to God and to receive glorification in the future. That's the mode of the Judaizers. It's the wrong mode. That's the mode of false religion, by the way. Uh, Judaizers' hope was based on what they were doing, based upon works of the law, not upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is why they were severed from Christ and had fallen away from grace. In verse 6, Paul reminds the Galatians that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, circumcision or non or uncircumcision, they have absolute zero relevance in this thing. They have nothing to do with any of it. You're trying to add it in, and it has nothing to do with what, what Paul is talking about here. It, it's irrelevant. The only, and he says the only thing that matters here, not what you're doing, what you do doesn't matter. Circumcision, baptism, anything, works of the law, they do not matter. Even works of the new covenant, they do not matter here. What matters is faith. Because faith is the impetus for righteousness and justification. And faith, it works through love for Christ and love for others, not through the flesh working through self-effort. Closing. What is Paul's main point according to Galatians 5, 1 through 6? What has he taught us? What has the Word of God taught us? What has the Spirit of God taught us? What is Paul saying here? What he's ultimately saying is that the law creates a lose, lose, lose situation for all who submit to it for justification. They lose their freedom, verse 1. They lose their Savior, Jesus Christ, verses 2 and 4a. And they lose God's precious Precious grace, verse 4b. There's a lot to lose here. As Christians, we must stand firm and never resubmit to a yoke of slavery by going back to the law or back to any form of works righteousness for justification. This is something that, that we will have to spend the rest of our lives being aware of and guarding against because our default mode is to try to earn from God. And the only one who ever earned anything from God the Father was God the Son through His perfect work. He earned our righteousness. He earned our justification. He earned our atonement. He earned our propitiation. He earned it all for us, and simple faith in Him gives it all to us. We are justified by faith alone 
in Christ alone. This is literally what separates Christianity from every cult and every false religion. As Luther said, it is the article by which the church stands or falls. Falls. 